Welcome to Passionate World Talk Radio. Educate, enlighten, entertain. This episode of the Energy Stoners Cafe is sponsored by Passionate World Talk Radio and Lillian Caldwell. PassionateWorldTalkRadio.com Welcome to the Energy Stoners Cafe. My name is Tony Quest, and I'm really happy that you're here. I like to interview the most interesting people I can find on the planet. So grab a cup of coffee, sit down, relax, and listen. You're going to find that these guests are so intriguing, you'll wonder why you didn't know about them before. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Energy Stoners Cafe. I'm so glad that you came, and you know how much I appreciate you listening. I have a really great guest tonight and someone I, I met through the internet on LinkedIn.com, which is where I hang out, if anyone wants to know. And his name is Gil Alba. Gil is a retired New York City Police Department detective, and he has a distinguished title of Detective First Grade. Um, he's worked on major cases, and there's a major case squad. I never knew that. And um, he's worked with FBI, the NYPD's Violent Crime Task Force, and I can go on, and, and I'll sort of uh, reveal some of these things as we go on. But Gil is, sounds like he's very, very special. He's got quite a background. Now he's the president of his own a private detective firm, which is Alba Investigations, I believe. Did I get that right, Gil? Yes, that's fine. Okay, thanks for coming on. And um, this is really quite a an honor to have you on. It seems like you've been really fighting crime for many, many years. Uh, no, no, it's not really fighting crime. It's helping people. Okay. So it's not, it's not anything negative. It's a, it's a positive thing, and it's, and it's part of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing I take personal, and... Uh, and my life doesn't change. So it's all part of life. And you go to the gym and relax. My personality doesn't change. Um, I'm always happy uh, to make it sound like I'm fighting crime all the time. It's not. It's the opposite. It's helping people in need. Well, that's what I like to hear. And that's what everybody needs to hear. And I just thank you for everything that you've done up until this point and going forward. So why did you decide to go into um, private investigation work? Well, I was in New York City Police Department for 27 years. So uh, like I said, I was in the FBI uh, task force and uh, violent crime task force and the major case squad. So we did a lot of high profile cases. Uh, when I retired, um, I had a few jobs um, that I didn't really, uh, it wasn't me to go work in those jobs. And uh, I opened up uh, my own private investigation company. And that's how I started. I started in 1998. So I've been doing this for a long time. The reason I opened it up as again, is to help people uh, in need because uh, as a private investigator, it's really not fighting crime. It's really finding solutions to helping people. So um, that's one of the reasons I came. So the same reason I went into uh, New York City Police Department was not because I wanted a gun and a badge and the power. Um, you know, I wanted to help people. So that's that's the reason I went to the police department. That's the reason I'm doing now. And that's the reason I'm uh, I'm still doing it. And it's still part of life. I think that you really live up to what we what I remember growing up is that um, officers of, of the law were considered peacekeepers. And I think that that's really, it sounds like that's where you're coming from. Right, right. It's helping people. But I mean, I mean, I was in uniform at the beginning. I started off in, in uh, they called it Fort Apache, which was the first, 41st precinct. Wow. Yeah, so I started there. And it, and it was uh, a lot of crime there. But uh, for me, it, you know, it's just helping people. And, you know, I liked it there. So uh, 
again, you know, I coached basketball there, part of the community. You know, that's why uh, in the police department was the greatest job in the world. So uh, as as a police officer, but uh, I was only in uniform for a short period of time. Um, uh, and then I went into not playing clothes, but uh, investigations and all that. So you had to always wear a suit and tie. But when any, any riots or anything came, they used to put you in uniform or any parades or anything. So uh, or anything big was happening, uh, I would go out in uniform, even though I was, uh, you know, detective that way. You know, I, I have to say that I, I really admire what you do and your attitude towards it as well. Um, I can say that I can attest to officers of the law being peacekeepers because the town where I live, I find that the people that are in the police department, they know my face, you know, they know my name. I f- they make me feel safe. And um, I do admire that. I'm also very intrigued by the fact that you're also the president of the Associated Licensed Detectives of New York State? Uh, so I was the former president of uh, the Private Investigators Association, which is a large organization. So that was a that was a good job also. And I was also Investigator of the Year so uh, from that organization. So that, that was another good thing. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you, I guess most people, like lay people like myself, you, know, you watch things on TV and you see it a certain way. And then when you realize that there are people that are actually doing this work, it might be somewhat like that, but it's not exactly the way we romanticize it, you know, on TV or in the movies. Well, for the last 20 years, I've been on almost every channel and I had an hour show on 48 Hours and uh, MSNBC. So uh, on some of my missing persons cases, missing murder cases. So uh, a lot it looks just like. Uh, some of the shows on TV. And I did a lot of uh, missing person cases that missing murder or unusual circumstances uh, through the years. So some of the most high profile cases I was involved with. You also were involved in uh, something to do with Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Yes, he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped. Uh, uh, he owned a tuxedo factory in Queens and he went to a diner and they took him from the diner and they uh, uh, put him in a hole by uh, George Washington Bridge, 158th Street. They dug a hole like uh, seven, eight feet deep. They put him in there and they put a metal uh, uh, cover over him. Whoa. And they kept him there for 12 days and then demanded uh, uh, three, I think $3 million or $9 million or something. But he got, uh, eventually got $3 million for, uh, for him. But um, kidnappings are, are totally unusual because uh, they'll call up and say they're they're from another country or, you know, released a prisoner someplace. So. They throw you off that way. So if you're not in tune to how kidnappings work, you're liable to believe, you know, something like that. But anyway, we got him back. We got his money back and we arrested the uh, the people who took him who actually worked for him. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, it's this is like it just sounds so like sensational. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They were all these are all high profile like cases and, and probably written up, uh, you know, someplace. So uh, in books and stuff. So I think they're making a. They're going to make a, a movie out of that uh, or, or a documentary out of that pretty soon. I mean, when you get into these things, I mean, do you, how do you know what to look for? You know, I always wonder, like, how do you know what to look for? How do you solve the crime? I mean, you see these uh, convoluted sort of British murder mysteries. That's one way. And then you see Dateline NBC. That's another way. And then you see like CSI. And that's another way. You, you, it just for someone like me, I wonder, like, which way is it? How is it to be in a position that you have to figure out what happened? So in the police department, 
uh, let's say a major case squad and you get a case, you have to sit around and uh, and throw out ideas of what 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 happened and what do you think happened and which direction to go and uh, what are you going to do? And, you know, plan the whole thing and, and, and follow every lead. Um, it's, it's a puzzle and it takes a while to get the puzzle together. And some peripheral stuff that you don't think is important, you have to throw that in also. So you gather all this information up and you know, you think you know who the killer is. And I have to say think because the family says, you know, they know who the killer is. So we, we have to say we think who the, but, and you can't make one suspect. You can't have one guy as a suspect because you go to court and they say, listen, you only blame my guy. So they almost throw it out. So you have a suspect. So you go talk to him and it, they, he says he wants a lawyer. So now you can't talk to him. So that almost stops, uh, stops the case. And, uh, and you have to go around doing all kinds of stuff, getting subpoenas. And, uh, and, and even that's hard to get when you got a lawyer. So the cases, some, some of the cases are, are really, really complicated. Um, so when you do that, but since I was a major case squad, um, I was bank robbery squad. I was in task force, uh, the kidnapping task force and financials. So, you know, I got good basis knowledge of, of everything. So when I retired, it, it was an easy transaction for me to go to these high profile cases. So going into these as a civilian now, and I'm, you know, I have my company, we have to do the same thing and go over everything and investigate everything. And, you know, I work with the families now and, you know, it's not easy working with families because their loved one is missing. So it could be an 18 year old kid in college who just, she disappeared and, you know, what happened to her? So you never know, or a 22 year old, you know, that, that was married and pregnant. And, uh, you know, the guy that was with her is a suspect, but he's got an attorney and we don't have enough DNA evidence and all that. So some of the cases are not easy to be solved. So they last for years and years. So if you keep going now with these cases, you know, now with the TV and they show DNA and all that kind of stuff, the DNA is getting much, much better and the investigations are getting much, much better. So it's, you know, you can, you can almost solve cases that happened 30, 40 or 50 years ago. So, uh, and, and that's a good thing. Um, the only thing is they, the police department doesn't have the manpower and all that to do some of these things. So as an investigator, I'm involved with these cases and I help the families and being in a police department and doing, let's say a missing person case that was murdered. So you do that case in the police department, but you go home, you go on vacation, you go, you know, so it, the case is really, um, you know, trying to solve it because it's, it's a case when you are as private investigator working for the family, you're working for the family. So you feel the family, you feel their emotions, you feel everything that they have. And, uh, and it, sometimes, you know, you have to learn how to deal with that. And one of the things that the families do is because the police don't handle it properly. They start getting angry at the police and hate the police. So that becomes, you know, an issue on, you know, them getting information or, something like that. So that's what I try to, you know, uh, show the families what, you know, what's coming ahead. And I get the families involved when I do investigations. So they have a little more control. So they're sitting on the couch, they have a little more control of what happened to their case. And, and really they feel like they're doing something for their loved ones. It's probably makes them feel less like a case number. So that's you really helped me segue in what I was going to ask you. Do you find that a lot of people get so, and you just answered it before I even asked, get frustrated by going through like the traditional uh, established methods of actually investigating something. And then they, they give up and then they pay for you. They go to you because you're going to work on their case and they're not just a file number. 
Yeah, so that's what happens. So you have to understand that police officers have to understand this and, uh, you know, have, has to have a little empathy and, and, and really uh, contact with the families all the time and let them know what's going on. You know, uh, as a, as a in the working in law enforcement, you can't really give the anybody information. Uh, you know, you have to keep everything, you know, without giving uh, without giving out information. So that's another problem that they have. So yes, that that's that happens. And I imagine this is just what I imagine because I can, you know I've never done anything near what you do, but I could imagine that um, it's difficult to maintain objectivity and not get emotionally involved in someone else's tragedy. Well, I do a lot, like I said, high profile across the United States and they're missing their son, their daughter, their, you know, something like that, or, you know, their wife and our husband or something got murdered, you know, you know who murdered them and, you know, they're really frustrated and uh, sometimes they don't know who did it, you know, and they, and sometimes missing, they're missing. So they're murdered, but they're missing. So you'll never get them. So there's no, uh, you know, you don't get any closure. So you always got a missing person. However, for me, you know, the incident didn't really happen to me. It wasn't my family that was missing. So I don't have the same kind of emotions that they do. So my personality doesn't really change. So, you know, I go help them as much as possible and show them what it is. And, you know, I'm not the most serious guy. So um, they have to take me as it is. And, you know, they all trust me and, and want me. So, uh, you know, I get along with everybody and, and, and help them as much as possible. You do seem... Um you know, objective at the same time, you're mindful, at least in my communication with you. Yeah, you have to be, you have to be right. right. So if you, if you ever looked at my uh, testimonials, you'll see the families, you know, really said nice things about me and how much that helped them. No, that's important. And, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I think also someone like you, I imagine if I was in a situation where I had um, someone that that had to have an investigation or, or hire someone like you, I think it would be a comfort to know that you, there is a little, I guess, um, there, I feel there's a glimmer of empathy there where you try to put yourself in their place. Um, some families are bitter because of that. So when you go talk to them, uh, you know, I never, there's two ways of doing this. The families, if they call me and ask me for my help, I could see that I can work with them. If somebody says, listen, I'm the sister, but can you talk to my uh, my sister? She's the one that's missing her, whatever, her husband or her sister or something. Can you go talk to them? If I do that, the sister would say, you could help. I mean, but uh, what do you need? Like, uh, what are you going to do about it or something like that? You know, uh, so when when they say, you know, something like that, well, what good what good are you going to do? So when they say something like that, I'm almost backing off because that's not going to work because they're expecting something from me. If I don't find it or I don't do something, you know, it's my fault. So uh, that's why families and getting along with them and having full trust in me, then I'll, I'll, I'll help the families. You have to have, be a little bit of a psychotherapist in a sense. Not a little bit. I would say 90%. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I'd say most of my cases are like 90% uh, therapists. It's interesting to consider the kind of cases that you have to take, that, that you have to get so deep into it. And, it. and I think that, I think people should feel somewhat comforted by that. They do. Yes, they do. But not, I don't take a lot. of. It depends on the case, you know, and who comes up with me and what do they need. But I don't, you know, it depends on the case. I wouldn't take a lot of stuff. So what would you say to, to young men and women that would be interested in following the same career path as you? Career path going into the police department and you want to be an investigator. 
that's a good way of doing it. Uh, you know, go through a system. However, you can be a, a, an investigator without going into the police department. So there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, uh, you can do investigations like this without going into the police department. In fact, I wrote an article in in the book. I don't know if you saw it uh, on that podcast I did. It was the art of investigation, and mine was uh, about you know how to go about getting involved in doing cases like this, whether you're going to the police department or whether you're not going to the police department. And it doesn't matter whether you're going to the police department or not. So people think that you have to go into the police department to do these kind of cases, but it really isn't because, you know, you go to criminal justice case, uh, schools and you take these and you want to do something, but you don't want to become a cop or you want to become, a, you know, in the police department. So there's other avenues you could take. Yeah. And I think that um, a lot of people don't realize that I didn't know that. I thought in order to do what you do, that you'd have to start with the police department as a police officer and come up through it that way. But it's interesting that you can actually take courses in investigation. Yeah, you could take courses in investigation. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Fordham University, any NYU, uh, Columbia, you know, any uh, John Jay College Criminal Justice, you know, so uh, any of those schools. I mean, not everybody wants to be a cop, especially nowadays. Certainly not. So uh, there's other there's other avenues you can take. It depends how bad you want it and and what you want to do. So uh, anybody needs help with anything or anybody young out there that wants to do be investigations, you know, you can put my email on there and they could always email me and, you know, I can direct them in some some fashion. Um, I go to colleges and I speak at colleges and uh, breakfast and keynote speakers and various places. So uh, we all need to hear from people like you more often. What is your email address? Info, I-N-F-O, at Gil, G-I-L-A-L-B-A, GilAlba.com. That's easy to remember. Info at GilAlba.com. Right. And um, do you have a website? www.gilalba.com. Okay, that's really easy to remember. Or just put my name. You can always just put my name in, in Google. I know, you could just Google you. That's what I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on, on LinkedIn and a couple of other things, I mean, I got a million things that I know there. So the other thing is I wanted to ask you is, do you find, like, I, I always wonder about this because, you know, I have a, a background in certain areas and I know why I wouldn't be able to do what you do. But how does one, considering the, the kinds of things you've investigated and, and the kind of investigations you've been involved in, how do you quiet your mind down after seeing some things that are just totally unpleasant? I always wonder, like, how do you take care of your own psyche? Well, like I said, I was in the police department and I've been doing this for many years, both of those things a long time. I don't really think that stuff bothers me that much, and it never did, even in the police department, and even you know kidnappings and you have shootouts and all that. Um, I still went to the gym afterwards and played basketball or did something, you know. So I never, uh, it was always part of life and not you know something that you hold over. But uh, some of these cases, you know, they the, 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 they are sad and you feel bad, you know, for the families. But again, my personality doesn't change, and my and uh, neither does my, you know, demeanor or anything else. So uh, that's why, you know, I'm enjoying my I always enjoy myself in the police department and like what I'm doing here. And that's why I say it's, it's, it's not a job. It's part of life. And I see that you compartmentalize your life. Perhaps that's a good way to be. I'm wondering if it happens that it was, oh, was it always that way or did it just become that way by default? It's like, it's an instant self, self-protection or, yeah, yeah, no, I don't really, I think that's all personality because since I was, you know, before I went to police department, so I, I don't think that's uh, competent because I'm same as home as I am 
doing that. You know, so I mean, I, you know, going there, let me see, as a New York City detective, you go into all these neighborhoods, whether it's an Indian neighborhood and you meet the families and you eat with them and they invite to the restaurants and Nigerian families, you know, Albanian families, uh, whatever nationality you want to go to, you know, actually I was born in Puerto Rico. So I came here when I was four years old and, you know, they sent me to the Fort Apache. So I worked there and most of the people were, you know, Puerto Rican. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I have my own, you know, you know, stuff going on. So, uh, in life, you know, sometimes you have your own stuff. So, um, everybody has their own stuff. Nobody's perfect. So that's maybe that's why I, I stay in even keel and things don't bother me that much, or they do bother me and maybe I don't feel it or, but I, I can't say too much, you know, so. I wouldn't even want you to have to like dig deep and try to figure out something that you've already solved, you know, <laughs> about yourself. But just to explain to, I want to tell the audience about Fort Apache because I have a global audience that listens to this podcast. And I don't think they know. I remember a movie called Fort Apache, The Bronx. And it was quite a movie. So maybe you could explain a little bit about why they made a movie about Fort Apache. And it's amazing to me that you worked in that particular section of the Bronx. Yeah, that was the South, the South Bronx. Fort Apache was in the South Bronx. It was the 41st precinct. Uh, they wrote a book on it, became a bestseller. And then they made a movie with Paul Newman, which became, uh, which is a big hit. Uh, the only thing is when I was there uh, at Fort Apache, all, you know, that movie was later on. So almost all the buildings were empty at the time. You know, that was when crack was going on. So everything, all the buildings were burnt out and, you know, the copper was gone. Everything was stolen. So everything was empty in the South Bronx. And uh, when I was there, I think they had more people than they did in Wall Street, you know, on noontime or something, uh, you know, living in a small area. So it was only a two and a half uh, mile area, but they had a lot of people uh, living in that area. So it was like 5,000 people to one cop at the time. So uh, there was a lot going on. So all these riots that you see all the time, that was like an average thing going on in the 41st precinct. Yikes. So it's almost like undescribable that you can talk to somebody else, even talk to the cops today and tell them about Fort Apache. It's, it's you know, it's inconceivable to them how it was, you know. But I'd have to say, you know, through the years, you know, and I was thinking that, you know, maybe things will get better, um, you know, with people, uh, you know, with these young kids going to school and, I didn't see them going to school and they were out all the time. I said, maybe through the years they get smarter and, you know, they'll build up. And, uh, and, you know, and although we had rides, Martin Luther King and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it was going to get better. And through the nineties, it was a bad. And then it got really, the crime rate went way down in New York city, one of the safest cities in the, in, in the world. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, COVID hits and, uh, and that changes, that changes a whole uh, dynamic of, everybody living. So here we have Black Lives Matter rioting. You have uh, the Capitol, you know, going crazy. So uh, you have all these things going on. And and it's unimaginable how with Black Lives Matter, what they did, what the Capitol did, the shooting, you know, right through a glass, killing the woman, uh, you know, the cop getting hit over the head and dying. And both of these things like uh, um, so I thought it was getting better. But with COVID, it's almost like a perfect uh a perfect world that they set up to be that way with nobody working, everybody frustrated. It's like a perfect storm. Yeah. Perfect storm. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. It's like a perfect storm and this is what's happening. So hopefully it gets better. You know, it's probably going to take a while to get better. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of tension right now, you know, so we have to, uh, 
you know, you got to be somewhat spiritual and, and uh, uh, either religious or spiritual. And, you know, you have to, you know, thank God what you have. And, uh, and, and when you say that, how many people around have families and they don't even have a job? So it, it, it's really tough all this. So you really have to, you know, thank God that, you know, your, your things are going to be better and hopefully they are. Yeah, not everybody has the wherewithal to the same thing that their neighbor can do, you know, and I think that what's happened is it's very hard to have empathy. I think it's interesting that you you talk about COVID because I know personally people that have been affected by the virus and there has been um, domestic violence due to it. And um, I'll say that um, I have a couple of friends that my my heart breaks for them that they've had to succumb to the virus, not so much as catching the virus, but it's like the uh, the residual damage of this situation of having to be, um, you know, forced to be at home with your abuser is a heartbreaking thing. And um, I think not everybody can empathize with that, but you know, I guess you probably know more about that. I'm sure you've been in situations where you've had to deal with um, the domestic violence. I haven't been doing that too much, but that is the thing that came up originally when COVID started because everybody's home. But they found out that it wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be with the, you know, violence at home and all that. So uh, that really died down a lot. Uh, you know, originally it was it was a thing. But, you know, we all know people that, you know, it's not easy at home you know, frustrated, no job or anything and, and, uh, and no place to go. And, you know, you can't help it. Uh, you know, you start an argument and, you know, and, you know, you, you could get into violence and, and, and that. So, um, that has to be looked into because we know that's not a thing that we want either, but I heard that that died down big time. It's not as bad as they thought it was going to be. Really? So, um, how do they, how do they know for sure? Because most victims don't report the violence. Yeah, well, I guess by what they report, you know, and and uh, that's about what you go with, you know, uh, th- that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, it's the only thing you have to go by because if they don't report it, there's no way you can help. Right. And, you know, you know, uh, if, if let's say a woman gets beaten up, is she going to be reporting it and and still living there? So it's not that easy. There's a good chance that she will not report it and she'll stay and continue to be abused she or he, I don't know, say it's always women, but it usually is. And then children don't have a choice, you know? So I think, I imagine, and, you know, you might agree or disagree with me that it's very underreported. Without a doubt, because, you know, really, where do you have to go? You don't have any job, you don't have anything, and you're the woman at home, and you got the kids. and Exactly, exactly. And that sounds like a quote from somebody I know. But I think that, I think that, that um, if you could even give advice to victims based on your experience, even though this wasn't your main thing, is if they're in a situation like that, I mean, how could you get the uh, law enforcement to pay attention um, before they actually, before the victims actually call you, if that's the case, or someone like you? Oh, you mean be, going to the police first? Um, you know what? The, the, what could happen is they could make a complaint and then um, they want an order of protection or something and they can't get it because it's not enough evidence or they go in a police station. He says, no, nah, you can't get that now. You got to go to court. You got to go here or there and you can't get it or you don't get help. You know, you know, my husband's beating me. Can you come? And there's no cops to go there. And so it's really, really frustrating. And uh, and it defeats the purpose sometimes going to police department looking for help. That's not always the case. I mean, they got a lot of good uh, uh, police officers that uh, listen and, and have empathy and want to help. Most police officers are good. 
you know, most of them are. And it, you know how it is, it's like one bad apple, but fortunately they're not always spoiling the whole bunch. I hope, I hope not. That's what I'm, that's my opinion. No, no, you're right. You're right. You know, and I just, I just know situations that people have been in. Sometimes there's an issue with um, even feeling um, worthy to call the police, considering the kind of monologue that an individual have in their head as they're being abused and called names. And it sort of lowers their confidence to actually go to the police and say, please help because of the situation. It's so complicated. That's why I always say, you know, look at things thoroughly, be mindful and use a little critical thinking and try to empathize with everybody involved. Yeah, no, those are all good points. But you, when you go to the police and you, you know, and you tell them you've been abused, um, that you have really been abused because that's a big step going to police. So when they call me up and uh, they said, listen, uh, here's the problem I'm having. I talk to them, and 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 just the mere fact that they call me uh, as a private investigator is a big big deal. They're taking that first step, so it's almost breaking the ice that they talk to somebody. So that's a good thing, you know. Just going to the police or going to a private investigator, just tell them what you know what's going on, how much help you need. Uh, um, if you're frustrated with the police, and uh, and you know that that that's a big thing. So you figure out, you know, and I, I'm about you know as a private investigator about solutions. So how are you going to deal with this, you know, with this issue? So if it's too much, then you, then I would go to the police and tell them what's going on. Yeah. Oh, so you will, so you'll actually intervene like that as a private investigator. I'm sure they respect you quite a bit. So let's say if you have to go to the police and talk about one of your client's situation. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, with my credentials, you know, they, 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 it's easy to accept, you know, it's a, you know, whenever I bring something to them and I'm only helping them basically, same with these missing murder cases I do. I do 90% of them and give them, you know, the whole thing and let them, uh, you know, if we solve anything, let them get the credit. And uh, ultimately, they're in charge. So, uh, you know, I give them the whole, you know, at some point, I'll give them the whole case. But I would never ask them about what they have in the case because they're really not supposed to tell me. But the families get, you know, frustrated when they don't talk to them and say they got nothing going on and all that, that stuff. So, um, yeah, I have a good rapport with the uh, police. Not not everybody, not all police officers. You know, some of them, is, you know, that don't know. They're a little standoffish. Uh, um, but, you know, once you tell them what, what you know, what, what my credentials are and who I am and all that. So they're extremely receptive. That's good to know. And also, I'll just say that I could imagine that when someone comes to you to, to like to, to Alba Investigations, that there's a different conversation than they'll have if they go straight to the police department. And that should be something that people know um, based on how they make a decision on to hire you. Cause I can tell it will be a different conversation. Exactly. So uh, the police department um, are looking to, to uh, solve the case, whatever that case is. So that's their motive as a private investigator, you're working with the family and you're trying to help them to get to that point. But there's a lot of obstacles in be- before that. So the lack of, of communication between the police and the families, you know, hurts the family a lot um, because they can't just sit on the couch and wait for a call, which never comes. So a police officer, you know, they call me all the time. I've been involved in so many cases for 20 years now, the same with the same families. You know, although I know uh, I have an idea who did it and and. Uh, and, you know, are they living, where they're living, what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of cases they have is, you know, missing or murdered. So uh, 
But, you know, you give me any of those cases, I kind of know if you tell me somebody's uh, uh, missing from your house, I kind of takes me a minute to find out what happened to them. You know, if they were murdered or if, uh, um, you know, whatever could have happened to them. Yeah. A lot of people think these days about human trafficking. Yes. Another one. Uh, Human trafficking is not easy. Uh, You know, you take a kid. They're not going to complain. Where are they going? They have no place to go. And, you know, and, and, you know, when you take a kid like that, it usually has, you know, mentally, mentally, it's all emotional and mental involvement. Yeah. It's, it's just, there's so much to think about these days. And, you know, everybody always say, always ends a conversation with this thing. Oh, be safe. You know, you know, it's like, it's not as easy as you think. And it's not just one way. And I'm and talking to you, Gil, I thank you so much because I realize more than I ever thought I would, how complex what you do, um, with the complexity of your involvement in these kind of cases. It's not as simple and straightforward as people might think. No, some of the cases I have for 15, 20 years and not solving, although I know what happened and it's just that you, you don't have the evidence, you don't have DNA evidence. So, you know, so um, and they have a lawyer, so you can't, you know, you know what happened. The family knows what happens, but you can't, you can't prove it. So that's the problem. And of course, when you say missing or murdered, so murdered, you have a family, maybe you could find that person, but, and then you could at least say goodbye to them because you have a body, but missing, you never do. And, and it just goes over your over and over in your head, like, where is my daughter? Where's my son? You know, something. So, um, you know, they never get over it. They never get the closure. Yeah, the closure. And it's hard, but it's always something that's lingering in the back of your mind. That kind of thing happens when you're dealing with your situation. I'll tell the audience this, that it they should definitely call you. So just give me one more time your website for the audience, Gil. Well, they can go just to Google and put Gil Alba. I'm sure they'll find me uh, on there in Google. Or my email address is info, I-N-F-O, at gilalba.com. So G-I-L-A-L-B-A.com. Okay, everybody. So now there you have it. And thank you so much, Gil Alba. I'll thank the audience for coming and listening to another podcast, another Energy Stoners Cafe. And I'll say the cliche, please be safe out there and be nice to everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Energy Stoners Cafe. Thank you for listening to Passionate Oral Talk Radio. You can listen to this program all over again by going over to https colon forward slash forward slash passionateworldtalkradio.com. You can also hear it on Spotify, Spreaker, Amazon A-L-E-X-A, AMFM247.com, every Tuesday evening between 8 and 9 p.m. YouTube, Facebook, Facebook Live, LinkedIn, and all the other podcast directories one can find on the Internet.